If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 18th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight on Storytellers, Michael Taylor Gray gets very sorted with playwright Del Shores. Very sorted. And then I catch up with the other sorted suspects at the 2019 Desert Age Walk in Palm Springs. But before all that, the honest tea. Well, Chloe Corcoran, welcome back. Thank you very much. You were actually in Washington, D.C., sharpening your leadership skills at the 2019 International LGBTQ Leaders Conference. It was organized by the Victory Institute, and I had the unique privilege this year of being a 2019 Victory Empowerment Fellow, full disclosure, and it was an awesome, awesome experience. As part of that, I was able to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota for candidate training, also to the International LGBTQ Plus Leaders Conference in Washington, D.C. Now, I had to leave a little bit early because I wanted to rush back for the show, and also I had a previous commitment, but it was fantastic. We heard from Sharice Davids, who is one of the first out queer women and indigenous women. Oh, um, wow. Yes. She is just fantastic. We heard from so many LGBTQ plus leaders from all over the country and the world. I can't speak highly enough of this conference. Do you know how long they've been doing this? I'm not sure how long they've been doing it, but it's at least been since 2016 or 2017. Yes, this International LGBTQ Leaders Conference took place from Wednesday, November 13th to Saturday, November 16th. And it was predominantly in Washington, D.C.? Yes, this was done in Washington, D.C. Mm. More than 500 LGBTQ elected officials, leaders, and advocates from across the world attended this International Leaders Conference. There were three days of networking and skills building, and they were strategizing the year ahead in our movement for equality. I think it's just brilliant that they're doing this. One of the main goals of the Institute and its corollary, the Victory Fund, is to get more LGBTQ officials elected to public office. And in fact, the Victory Institute shared that in order to achieve proportional representation across all 500,000 elected offices, we have to elect at least 22,827 more LGBTQ elected officials. So we're on our way. We're doing much better than we have in the past, but we all have a long way to go, too. And what I like about this is it's very encouraging of you to run, but it also gives you the tools that will help you run and win an elected space. Well, I mean, just look in Virginia. Danica Rome from the Virginia House of Delegates, our transgender sister who won 
her seat in the House of Delegates there in Virginia, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, over the gentleman who wrote one of those uh, bills about keeping us in our bathrooms and, you know, you know, how to get nervous to get about their bathrooms. Yes. Yes. So she won her seat and beat an incumbent, which yes. is pretty impressive just as it is. She's also the first transgender official to win re-election in such an office, beating another candidate who came after her on a platform of protecting the children, which can you get more coded than that? Not the children. So <laughs> fortunately, I have a fangirl crush on Danica Rome. As well and, as you should. I do too. As I lean into the politics of being an LGBTQ person, because to be transgendered, to be in the LGBTQ plus community is to be political. Our lives are political and we can't hide from that. If you want the change to happen, you have to be the agent of change. Now, last year's speakers included U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Governor Jared Polis, and uh, from the Virginia House of Delegates, Danica Rome. They're not messing around here. Do you know who stopped by this year for the opening plenary? Who? None other than Bernie Sanders, presidential candidate. Bernie Sanders. Yes, he showed up. He gave a wonderful speech, very welcoming. Elizabeth Warren sent in a video message. So it was great to hear from these elected officials that realize we're an important part of the community, an important part of becoming elected and holding office and making change. And our allies, many times, are the conduits. They're that link for us making that leap over to that next step of equality. So we have to really join forces. And allies are really important. And we can see that in other stories, such as with the parents of Matthew Shepard. Oh, yes. Now, the parents of slain gay Wyoming man, Matthew Wayne Shepard, they were blasting the U.S. Attorney General William Barr just this last week for failing to stand up for LGBT civil rights in a statement that was read at a Justice Department ceremony marking the 10-year anniversary of a hate crime law bearing their son's name. Now, I'm pausing for a second because there are so many different ways to talk about this, but to invite somebody to commemorate their son's life and the hate crime law that was named after him and Jim Bird. Jim Bird, who was tied up and dragged to his death behind a truck. Both of their murders were so heinous. They suffered terribly. So you can understand. Judy, his mom, has been so outspoken from the day he passed. And both his parents, but especially his mother, is much more vocal. His, his father, Dennis, is much more of a quiet-spoken man, but still is very passionate about uh, honoring Matthew's spirit as well as uh, Mr. Burns. So they were invited to the Department of Justice to commemorate this. While the Department of Justice is seeking to pass laws against the LGBTQ plus community for discrimination, and she specifically references the transgender community being allowed to be fired for their gender identity and expression. Right. Now, they couldn't attend because they were traveling, but they had a representative from Matthew's foundation there. And she wrote a statement they wanted to make. We find it interesting and hypocritical that he, Barr, would invite us to this event commemorating a hate crime law named after our son and Mr. Bird, while at the same time asking the Supreme Court to allow the legalized firing of transgender employees, Deedle said, reading from the letter. And Ms. Deedle was uh, the representative that was there on behalf of Matthew's parents. This is an ally speaking truth to power. When you walk into Washington, D.C., into the Department of Justice, and you have a representative from your foundation say, what you're doing is wrong in public to a large audience that is going to collect news coverage, that's powerful. Absolutely. And furthermore, 
Mr. Barr, you cannot have it both ways. If you believe that employers should have the right to terminate transgender employees just because they are transgender, then you believe that they are lesser than and not worthy of protection. If so, you need not invite us to future events at the Department of Justice, Deedle said. A woman and amen and a everything else. Hit the nail on the head. One hit and that nail went right in. If you believe that transgender people should be able to be fired and discriminated against for their identity, don't bother to invite us again. Yeah. And the reaction to those in attendance, the remarks drew applause and a standing ovation from a significant portion of the audience. Diesel said she was standing in for the shepherds because they were traveling, as I mentioned. Well, thank you to all of the people there who stood up and applauded, too, because it's important to show that these voices aren't just lone cries in the woods, that these are being supported by many other people, and that there's a whole community and a whole, let's call it family out there, that is supportive of this whole group of people, this whole group of folks who are suffering and struggling for basic employment. Absolutely. Among other things. And Matthew's parents, I met them a year to the day that Matthew was murdered. Yes. It was at uh, a Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles, and they've become such allies for all of us, especially in the LGBTQI community. So I'm grateful for them. I'm, you know, it breaks my heart that this is where they are because of what happened to Matthew. But Matthew's spirit is doing a lot of good for all of us. Well, thank you to the Shepherd family for doing all that they are and being powerful allies to the LGBTQI community. I can't begin to tell you how much that is appreciated. And you mentioned something, you talked about growth. And growth is usually about change. And we can see changes in attitudes a lot of times. And one of those changes is transgender people playing sports. What is something that happened recently? Can you tell us about that? My goodness, this is really exciting. And you don't have to be a sports fan to find this exciting. It's just wonderful for all of us. In Boston, the first trans hockey team takes the ice. This was reported in NBC Out and Proud on November 11, 2019 by Tim Fitzsimmons. The Boston Pride Hockey League hosted a scrimmage with Team Trans, the first ever all-transgender hockey team. And they played against the Boston Pride Hockey, uh, Boston Pride. What a cool thing to do, bringing trans people together, being inclusive in sport. We see a lot of fear-mongering and hate towards trans people through sport, which is... Unfortunate. I don't know if our listeners know this. I'm a former college football player. I didn't have the chance to come out when I was in college, although I wish that I had. But I don't know how that would have been. Well, I have an idea of how that would have been received. Not great at the time, to say the least. But things change and people grow. And I'm hoping that examples such as this hockey game, this hockey scrimmage, can show the growth of trans people in sports and that it's not a problem. It's not a competitive disadvantage. I know that's a concern because I, we were, Chloe and I, we do a lot of pre-show chatting with each other. And uh, it's interesting that this came up at this time because I, in some of the catering work that I do for a company here in Los Angeles, one of my fellow coworkers, he asked a lot of questions about LGBTQI issues and whatnot. He's, he wants to learn. But he had a concern about transgender men and women playing sports. And is that fair? And right away, he's like, you know, he felt he was at a disadvantage if I was going to take his toy away. You know, and pardon me if I'm speaking out of turn and turn. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's feelings or reaction to this. But when I hear not fair about a game as opposed to somebody's life 
And I think about our transgender brothers and sisters. What's not fair is that they're more at risk for their mental health, for their for just their lives in general, and for your lives yes. in general. And just all of that needs to be balanced to where those aren't issues, that there's more of an even playing field. Let's deal with that. But at the same time, I understand I'm from Canton, Ohio, honey, the Pro Football Hall of Fame city, right? So I know how sports is, how important it is. And it's so part of an American culture. It's very important to people, and they want to make sure that the games are on the up and up. And that's why things like gambling and sports are so taboo and other things like that. But transgender women and and men, I believe, have been allowed to compete in the Olympics for the, at least the last 10 years. And there have been zero medalists from the transgender community. We're not out there kicking everybody's butt. We're out there playing fair and doing our best. Yeah, and it's important so that we have, now we're starting to get examples that we can point to, and it's important. But we need to have a big old round table and have everybody who has, you know, a penny in this game to sit down at the table and talk about all of these issues and give them all credence and, and import and really have an open mind and heart to it. Now, a team trans hockey player, Harrison Brown, was inspired to come out as trans in 2016 after having seen pioneering transgender triathlete Chris Mosier being true to himself. Harrison Brown's motto from that point forward, for me, when you see it, you can be it. And I'm like, I'm with that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Absolutely. I would wear that. Yeah. Prior to joining Team Trans in the Boston Pride Hockey League, Brown played for the Buffalo Buttes, I love that name, a team within the National Women's Hockey League. It's amazing to see you play your sport and be yourself. That was another important statement. Seeing yourself do what you love instead of being outside of it and not a part of it. He was driven by a strong desire to participate in that kind of positive representation that was what drew Harrison Brown to play on the truly historic all-trans hockey team. And this seems like it's such a great experience for so many of the athletes. One person that I really resonated with their message was Jessica Platt. And she said, growing up, I always played boys hockey and it didn't feel like a safe atmosphere for me. I knew there was something different about me, but I always tried to be who I needed to be to fit in because I saw anyone who didn't quite fit in the male hockey atmosphere got made fun of pretty harshly, so I didn't want to be that person. That is 100% young Chloe. That is 100% me. You are young Chloe. <laughs> yes. I am still young, young at heart at the very least. <laughs> and when I was an athlete and when I was growing up, and I don't mind sharing this with the listeners, I tried to be the all-American male. I tried to out-dude, out-guy everybody that I could. Did well in school, captain the high school football team, went on to play college football for four years at a small university. And... I call it loud enough to be quiet. I was always trying to be loud enough to be quiet. Make just enough noise that people wouldn't think that something was wrong. Make just enough noise. Say just enough that people would notice that you were there but not delve too much into what was going on with you. And that was really important to me as a survival technique until it got to the point that I couldn't do that anymore. I would love to see this type of trans hockey games, this trans hockey team expand to other sports because there are trans athletes doing great things out there. Absolutely. And point in fact, I'm a cisgendered gay male. So I don't, it's just not my mindset. It's not part of my life experience. My, night, my mind and my body and my spirit has not had to go there. And so Boston Pride Vice President Mark Tikhanov stated, for us, we didn't realize how much we had in common. And we didn't realize, I'm speaking personally, he said, how much this community was underserved. 
as a cis gay man going into a locker room with other cis gay men, I don't fear for my safety and I don't fear judgment and I don't fear exposing part of myself to people. He really had some enlightenment because he was approached by a couple of the team members from Trans Team. This is before Trans Team was, was formed about how to put a team together. Yeah. Because they wanted a safe place to be themselves, to be able to go into it. What was another thing I thought was just brilliant? Look at me with all my notes. Team trans player Hutch Hutchinson, which is the best name ever, a moment of pure gratitude. He had a moment of pure gratitude. We as trans people fight either big battles or little battles every day. This was an opportunity to walk into a locker room and we didn't have to explain anything to each other. We're here. We are trans. This is great. Another great t-shirt moment. (laughs) And you can see the importance of storytelling in this because it allows people who don't have the experience to go out and learn and be exposed to different lifestyles, different identities, different expressions, and say, oh, this is okay. This is cool. In storytelling, I, I hope that our listeners will also share these stories with their friends and their family members. And maybe it comes up at Thanksgiving and you rile people up a little bit, but that's okay because that's what learning is about, being just uncomfortable enough to learn. Absolutely. And just for a little, a little, a little back note, a little history on the Boston Pride Hockey League, they are an LGBTQ intramural organization that has both cisgender and transgender members. Like you said about the transgender athletes and the Olympics who haven't, you know, been hogging all the medals, right? right? Unfortunately for the trans team, they lost both their games, but they were there and they participated and they got to have that experience of having their tribe participate. I have found that most of life is about showing up and I appreciate our audience showing up for us this week. And that's The Honest Tea. The RuPaul Doll, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. RuPaul Andre Charles, better known as RuPaul, is an American drag performer, actor, model, and singer-songwriter. Gaining fame in the 1990s on television shows and films, he launched a reality show in 2009 called RuPaul's Drag Race. With popularity comes your own doll, and the RuPaul doll made its debut in 2005. The doll was created by Integrity Toys and designed by Jason Wu, who also designed First Lady Michelle Obama's inaugural ball gown. The box says, 99% plastic, 1% woman. The RuPaul doll comes in many styles, including Supermodel RuPaul, Red Hot RuPaul, and Glamazon RuPaul, all with that over-the-top look. Take your pick. They're ready to sashay down the runway. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash in Philadelphia. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. My mama told me when I was young, we are all born superstars. She rode ahead and put her lipstick on. In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause it made you perfect, babe So hold your head up, boy, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say No matter gay, fate or bi Lesbian, tragedy, life, I'm on 
right track, baby I was born to survive No matter black, white, or beige Or loud or warrior made I'm on the right track, baby I was born to be brave Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. On October 20th, I walked with Team Sorted Lives to raise money for the Desert AIDS Project in the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. This was my second time on the team and my first as a co-captain. But several team members have participated for the past four years. So I sat down with these sorted storytellers to find out just what keeps them coming back. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. We're at the Desert AIDS Walk 2019 here in Palm Springs. I'm walking with Team Sorted Lives, and one of these Sorted Lives film as well as a stage actor, and he's been in all incarnations of Sorted Lives. We have the incredible <laughs> Noel Alexander. Why do you walk for the Desert AIDS Project here on Team Sorted Lives? During this AIDS epidemic, I had a friend named John Allison who managed the Callboard Theater, which was an Amy Simple McPherson temple. When we first moved to LA, uh, I didn't know anybody, and we lived over in West Hollywood on Croft Street, which was like two blocks from John's theater. When I first came to town, I walked down and talked to him one day, and the guy was just so accepting of me and gave me hints and I paint sets and I do a little bit of artwork and stuff. Anyway, I did a couple of panels for him, big, big, tall, eight foot panels. He became my really first solid friend in LA. And one day somebody said, John's sick. And I said, really? Well, you know, what is it? And they said, yeah, we don't really know what it is. John died. And it was hard for me. I've worked with gay people my entire life. You know, my first job in advertising was uh, designing windows. People I worked with who were creative people who were gay. So it did, you know, it, it made absolutely no difference to me. John was really one of my really better friends. I don't walk for John. You know, I grieve for him. But I do a walk for all those people who have been saved and who are being dealt with and who are being helped from this terrible epidemic. Boy, we were so scared living in West Hollywood. Boy, oh boy, this thing hit us like a brick. And we were losing people like crazy and nobody knew. Do you hug them? Do you give them a kiss? Can, you know, do you shake hands with, you know, with people that you suspect might have the disease? But uh, we outlasted it and uh, everybody pulled together. Now, you have an amazing connection to our Sorted Life's team captain, Del Shores. We first met Del when we were at the call board theater doing a bluegrass musical and uh, Dell's roommate at the time was doing a little replacement role and Dell came backstage and he said I saw in the bios that you were a friend of the Texas writer Preston Jones which I was and he said I think I write like Preston and uh, I, I, I said sure you do you know so he brought me a script play called Cheatin'. I read the play and the first three pages uh, were a monologue that I read and I just, I would have killed to get that role. So I helped Dell produce that first show, Rosemary and I did. Dell's remained a, a wonderful friend. Dell's 
my ex-son-in-law and uh, the dad of my two granddaughters. And he and my daughter are best friends and you know everything is is on the up but boy he changed my life I'll tell you what I just really thank him for continuing to nurture me Dell says I think of you and Rosemary as my parents and I think of, of Dell as my leader he's got a huge flock we're gonna do some good well I tell you you're an inspiration for all of us keep punching out there man you got it, Coach. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. I'm speaking with Rosemary Alexander. And Rosemary Alexander is the wife of Newell Alexander. How did you get from Sorted Lives, the movie, the play, the TV series, to Team Sorted Lives for Desert AIDS Walk, benefiting Desert AIDS Project for the Coachella Valley? Well, I'm sure that it probably started with Del Shores inviting us to come out and join the team because he always headed it up. And But over the years, we, we came out and did things with him, and then we were asked by Art Gregory, who heads up, he's one of the leaders of the Sorted Lives team here in Palm Springs, and uh, you become friends with other people, and they invite you and include you. And ultimately, it leads, you know, many strings pulling together and they all attach themselves to your heart. You know, you just join up and then you create a new family. So these people are our family here now. Who do you walk for today? Well, I walk for the the first delicious young man that I knew who was handsome and sweet and talented and working hard to become an actor in Dallas. His name was Johnny Cacciatore. I knew him and he was part of the community that I was working to be a part of. And years later, I became friends with his sister, Madonna Cacciatore. And I found out from her that he had died of AIDS very early on, probably about the time that we left Dallas and moved to Los Angeles. When there's a face, a really good person behind a name and a disease that has no heart and has no boundaries. You just have to say, what can we do about that? What can we do to help? You know, you can't touch everybody's life, but if you can help a few people, you know, I feel like the work we do here with Desert Aids, we raise a little bit of money, it helps a few people, and ultimately, you help a lot of people. You say you raise a little bit of money. Could you tell us how much money has Team Sorted Lives raised? Well, we have raised around $30,000. It's a little bit over that now. You know, the special relationship that you've maintained with Dell Shores and how that has evolved over the years. Might you give us a little bit of your perspective on, on how that relationship has grown? Newell worked in his first play. I understudied a role in his first play. I worked in his next five plays as an actor, and somewhere along the way he married one of our daughters, and they had two beautiful daughters together, and then of course, you know, if you know Del Shores, you know he's been out and claimed a life as a gay man um, ten years, I think, after he had married our daughter. And you know what? We understood. Del is, he's brilliant. He's kind-hearted, he's sincere, he is, he works so hard for his community, 
he was always great to have in the family. He helped, he babysat everybody's kids. He helped all the girls with their hair. He was always in the kitchen helping cook for big meals. And he just remained a part of the family. He's been a spectacular dad and uh, always a great friend. It really is one big sorted lives family. It's true, we are a sorted family and he is our leader. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. My name is Matt Hayes, a co-team captain of the Team Sorted Lies, uh, part of the Desert AIDS Project's annual AIDS Walk. So Matt Hayes, why do you walk in the Desert AIDS Walk? One of my best friends from college, he was the first person I ever knew that, that was diagnosed with HIV. Uh, and that, I will say that probably changed my life because it really opened my, my eyes to like, oh, this disease is out there. It's not so far removed like I thought it was. And then I've had some partners that were positive. I've been with them when they have found out their diagnosis. And, and watching someone um, question their worth and question their value. I, while there's not one person I walk for, there is a, a group of people in my mind that I do have in mind when I do these walks, for sure, and ask for money, not just for them, but for the you know people that came before them that maybe weren't so lucky, that are still um, struggling and, and succumbing to this awful, awful disease. Our local co-captain here, and also our number one fundraiser on our team is Art Gregoire. Why do you walk with Team Sorted Lives? Well, I walk with Team Sorted Lives because of the camaraderie, spirit, and passion of all of its team members, led by Del Shores, because Del Shores is Sorted Lives. And he has embodied and, and, and given a passion to all of us to be on this walk and be part of this team. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my Team Sorted Lives interview from the 2019 Desert AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, California. I'm speaking with the lovely, talented, vivacious Ann Walker. So, Ann Walker, how did you become a part of Team Sorted Lives? What's the sorted story behind this? Well, I ran into this guy named Del Shores back in 1992 or three, and I read for him for his play. Daddy's done, he's got the will. Yeah, that's the one. And so I got to come and audition for him, and I read really well, but he gave it to somebody else. Then he called me back to do Daughters of the Lone Star State, but to understudy. How do you feel about that? I hate it. And I explained to him, I do not understudy anybody. And nobody needs to understudy me because I'm not going to miss a performance. And then he wrote this part in the Sorted Lives play. What part was that? That would be LaVonda Dupree. LaVonda <laughs> <laughs> Dupree in Sorted Lives. Yes. And Walker, that is a signature role for you. Yes, it is. Just like I love Lucy, Lucille Ball, Ann Walker, LaVonda Dupree. How are there similarities with LaVonda and Ann Walker that gets Ann Walker to be part of the Desert Age Project's Desert Age Walk here in Palm Springs? Because I'm a lot like LaVonda Dupree. I live and I let live and I enjoy it and I celebrate everybody and their journey in life, whether they are gay or straight or bi or trans. The last time I was here, I did the uh, transgender group. I gave a speech. And it was a great speech and it was so well received. And I'm just so happy that we have to stick up for our sisters and brothers who are trans. And that's a whole nother part of this. 
I cannot stand the fact that there's still a group in the LGBT plus that is being so persecuted and killed for who they are. African-American sisters who have been killed just this year is a staggering 20 or 21 people. I, I want to get that stopped. I want to do anything I can to get that stopped because I'm, I'm just so, so attuned to that right now. Well, you know, the LGBTQIA+, and A would be ally, you're our ally. You're one of our greatest allies, and we need more, more people like you fighting the good fight alongside with us. And so with that in mind, You're here with Team Sorted Lives at the 2019 Desert Age Walk in Palm Springs. Is there anybody in particular that comes to mind that you're walking for today? Uh, one of my dear friends, Betty Murphy, our son Michael, he was in a company of Bessel Whorehouse. He was a dancer on Broadway, and then he went to Vegas. And at some point, he contracted HIV, and then it became AIDS, and he passed away. And so I walked for him and for my friend Betty Murphy because of the loss. I can't even fathom losing a child. It doesn't matter how you lose them. If they go away, you will feel the hurt forever. I have two children and I can't imagine my life. I would have to live in a cave or something if I lost a child. And she's gone on because that's what you do, but you have a hole in your heart. What keeps you coming back to the Desert Age Walk? Gail Shores. <laughs> He makes me do it. <laughs> I don't have a choice. <laughs> I need his, you know, kick in the pants to get me going. And I'm happy to be here and happy to lend whatever I can to Desert Aids Project. Well, thank you for letting us into the sphere that we know is Ann Walker, because it's a beautiful place to be. Thank you, darling. I appreciate that. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? It's really interesting for me, and I assume for our audience, to hear the different stories behind why somebody would go out and do this walk, their connections to the walk, and how much fear there was in the community at the time when the AIDS epidemic was occurring. Even though it's still occurring, when this was something new that we didn't know about, it was a serious scare. Well, absolutely. And it continues to be a part of our lives in, in many ways. But the exciting aspect of this part of the journey is that people are living with HIV and thriving due in large part to these organizations like uh, LA AIDS Project and Desert AIDS Project, which services the Coachella Valley, which Palm Springs is a part of. And just to be with all these people on this walk, on this beautiful day, surrounded by these gorgeous mountains in the desert. It's really inspiring, and everybody has a story of how they walk, why they walk, and why they're still so actively involved. And, and, and ours, with Team Sorted Lives, has a very special little aspect to it because Del Shores is a big part of uh, why our team members walk and keeps us motivated. And we're, we're also darn competitive, but we're competitive uh, for a good cause. So. Well, thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you to the Sorted Live team members and all the walkers and those who participate across the country in these types of events. Thank you, Chloe Gorgren. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The fabulous Liberace doll coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known as Liberace to his fans, Walter to his family, and Lee to his friends, Liberace became an iconic over-the-top musician and performer. Born in 1919, he learned piano at age four, which later led to his stellar career of showmanship. 
His trademark was wearing lavishly sequined and rhinestone-studded costumes. Always performing at a grand piano with a candelabra, his hands displaying huge jewel-encrusted rings. In 1986, one year before Liberace's death, F&B Doll Corporation issued their doll, Liberace, Mr. Showmanship. He stands 17 inches tall, is fully jointed, and made of vinyl with painted facial features and molded brown hair. The doll is dressed in loads of flamme, including silver pants, black cummerbund, and bow tie, and magnificent silver cape with stand-up collar. A letter from Liberace was included in the box, but no miniature candelabra. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Glenn Lash, in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Leslie Jordan, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I am are you. I am are you. My mama told me when I was young, we are hold on superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of a boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause it made you perfect, babe So how do you head up, girl, and you go far? Listen to me Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Just last week, Del Shores was our special guest co-host because our very own Chloe Corcoran was sharpening her leadership skills in Washington, D.C. Del Shores is an accomplished and successful playwright, screenwriter, director, actor, and stand-up storyteller. But his greatest accomplishments to date are his family ties. Here's another serving of storytellers featuring the very sordid Del Shores. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Del, everybody has a story to tell. You were part of my inspiration for doing the show. You spend your life telling stories in various ways as a playwright, screenwriter, live theater, storyteller. But your backstory is probably what inspires me the most because many of us in the LGBTQI plus community, our relationships with our families are either strained in many ways or non-existent. I'm a Texan. I grew up in South Texas. Early childhood was West Texas, the son of a Southern Baptist preacher and a high school drama teacher. And all that damage gave me a career. You were part of the first production of Southern Baptist Sissies. And I always say, if you really want to understand me, if you want to understand from whence I came, see Southern Baptist Sissies. Uh, absolutely, because one of the main characters was preacher, modeled after somebody very close to you. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. It wasn't just my dad. There were lots of pastors that I combined to create the preacher in Southern Baptist as he's played so beautifully by my ex-father-in-law, Noel Alexander. But I, I have to tell you, I mean, you were part of that journey from the very beginning. That was one of the richest times of my career. It was the scariest time of my career because there is a feeling that you're betraying that you're betraying everything that you grew up with, that you're betraying your family, and yet it is your truth. And I had to tell it. I had to tell that story. So take us back to prior to Southern Baptist Sissies. You're a, you're a young man about to get married for the first time. 
Tell us about I that. love the way you just say, yeah, for, for the first time. And then your second divorce, Dale. <laughs> I'm saving judgment I, for later. I have had success <laughs> in career, not in marriages. You get married as many times as you need to. Oh, there you go. I think I've stopped. Well, you know, I being being a, a Southern Baptist preacher's kid with all that damage, I really, it's it's so interesting because I came out here with, with a big dream of, first of all, being an actor that segued into being a a writer and director, but you know, I I never I never could be okay with that part of myself. I loathed loathed that part of myself because of the upbringing and the way I was taught. I I didn't want to be gay, and it's so isn't that odd? Because I love being gay now. It's like well, we you know you you struggle to get to that point of giving yourself permission right. to to be authentically you. It was it was it was a very big big struggle and a journey for me. There was just so much psychological and and religious damage. When I finally dealt with it, uh, thank goodness for a very good therapist named Dr. Sandra Baca. And I got into therapy and I was in a marriage. I had two little girls that at the time were two and five years old. Caroline just turned 27 and Rebecca will be 30 in a couple of weeks. So you've known those kids since they were just really little. You know, it's hard. It's hard to to leave a marriage and to, to change everything. And yet the struggle was so intense that I couldn't, I don't think I could have been sane anymore. How did you manage to maintain those relationships through that decision of not repressing who you are anymore, you know, knowing that, that they were going to experience some hurt? Well, yes. And, and of course, my ex-wife was the first to know, but besides my therapist, it was not easy. It was not easy for her. It was not easy for me. And the journey, there's still struggles there in that relationship. I, I had the greatest advice from um, Dr. Sandra Baca. We shared a birthday. My birthday's coming up, December 3rd. And uh, I always remember that. But she said to me, because I, I, I really felt like, oh, I, I have to come out now. I mean, and I'd just written Sorted Lives. You know, I'd come out at that point to my ex-in-laws, who I'd, I'd worked with many times, uh, Rosemary and Noel Alexander, who continue to be very, very close to me. And she said, you need to tell people that you know will be okay with it. She said, is there anybody that will celebrate it? This is coming from your... My therapist. Start with the person who will celebrate it. So I called Leslie Jordan. (laughs) And he says, oh my God. (laughs) Well, was he surprised? He says to this day, he says, I had no clue. I had no clue. And I'm very good with the gaydar. No, he, he was the godfather of my oldest daughter. I mean, I don't know what we were thinking when we chose Leslie Jordan to be the godfather of our child. No spiritual guidance whatsoever. And another great storyteller, too. Oh, my God. He is the best storyteller, in my opinion. <laughs> Leslie Jordan is my favorite storyteller. So anyway, I called him and he, he, he did celebrate. And then it, it, the next one was easier. She was right. There was a, there was a, a, a big process for me. I think that's a great piece of advice for those who struggle with coming out. You had an opportunity to start off on a really strong footing. Yeah, and and you know, in in, in Newell and Rosemary, when I told them, they were both very very supportive. It's so funny. Yesterday, I was going through all these old pictures because my it's it's my good friend Tommy Wolfel's birthday today, and I was trying to find a picture of us years ago to to post, and I found this birthday cake that said Happy Birthday. 
It was from Rosemary. This is from his ex-mother-in-law. Yes. It was crazy. So it was a crazy time in my life, but it was a beautiful time in my life. And one of the, the greatest gifts that I gave to myself was to write about it, to be a storyteller and to tell my story. And I started with Sorted Lives and I started using those therapy sessions. If you look at the therapy sessions in Sorted Lives, those are my sessions with Dr. Sandra Baca. And so, so then I came out to my, my Southern Baptist family. Ooh, that was tough. I, you know, I was on Ned and Stacy, and one day there was a homophobic remark in the writer's room, and I let it go. A few days later, it was coming out day was coming up, and Dan Butler, the actor Dan Butler, there was an ad in Variety. And, it, and we know Dan from? From, from Frasier. From Frasier. Yes. But Dan wrote this, he, he was one of our first openly gay series regulars, and he actually had this great quote. I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said, if you're working in Hollywood, if you're working in the industry and you are closeted, you are basically saying to yourself that you cannot do your job and be out. And that hit me so hard. And I thought it is time. And so just like tie in sort of lives, I just started telling people I'm gay, I'm gay. And it was so easy. It got easier and easier. I would tell everybody and nobody. It was like, well, honey, we knew. I mean, so, some of that was going on. And then you get you do get some eye rolls. <laughs> <laughs> so then I wrote my parents a, a letter and uh, my mother took it very well. I always say, uh, if you want to know how my mother reacted, just just watch Sorted Lives. That was that was uh, my, my mom was Latrell, And uh, my dad and my brother had a much harder time with it. But our families do come around sometimes, and, and my, the, the tension has eased, and some of it has come from my brother's children, who are, you know, a, a different generation. And the girls and I are going to Texas to spend Thanksgiving with them this year. You know, it's interesting, because I wrote a letter, too, to my, to my mother in particular. Seems like mothers are the first to embrace their, a lot of times, not always. I always feel that mothers know. A lot of them, have, like my mom, and yeah. it was a very special bond with my mother. I mean, you know, my mother, my mother literally said, she said, you know, I've known this your whole life. And I was like, well, why didn't you help me? And she goes, well, I didn't want you to be gay. I walked into my house and the phone, the landline was ringing. I answer it. It's like one in the morning and it was my mother and she's like, well, we got your letter today. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no. How fast was your heart beating? Very fast. And she goes, it's been quite an eventful day in Palestine, Texas. This is Michael Taylor Gray and you're listening to my interview with storyteller Del Shores. My dad and I didn't speak for a little bit. You know, my ex-wife actually called my mother and said, you know, Dell's taking the kids home for Christmas and he's concerned because my brother and my dad had not spoken to me about this. And the letter was to all of them. And my dad was a real man's man and he was a good man. And the journey with my dad ended in when he was very ill. And I went to see him in Texas, in San Antonio. He was in the hospital. The last thing he said to me, he said, I've never understood you but I do want you to be happy. And I was just about to get married for the second time to a man, but he wanted me to be happy. And that was enough for me. My dad actually died on my birthday. I was working on Queer as Folk and I woke up on December 3rd, 2003, I think. And there was a message from my brother on my cell phone. And he said, I know this is not something that you would want to hear on your birthday. Our dad uh, just passed away. So I packed and my writing family there on Queer's Folk, they were aware that my dad was very ill. And so they knew that there was a possibility that 
any day I would show up with a, a suitcase to go to the airport and, and, and not the writing room. So I did go to the writing room and spent a good portion of the day while my flight was being arranged. And then I went home. I want to go back to that story that we're telling today. Is this relationship with your ex-wife and your relationship with Rosemary and Newell Alexander, not only your ex-in-laws, but, but have been in several of your plays and, and the movie versions? Because for me, that was part of the impetus of me wanting to do uh, this conversation, this, this storyteller's conversation with you, because I, I don't have that relationship with my family. And I know a lot of us in the LGBTQI community have strained or broken relationships with family, yet you went through a divorce and your relationships have, have grown closer, stronger, and deeper over the years. And I, that's mind-boggling to oh, me. Oh, they're amazing humans. They're just amazing people. They're amazing actors and artists. And but they're 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 as close to parents as I have now because both of my parents are are gone, and I love them so deeply that I, I spend holidays with them and uh, not not spending Thanksgiving this time, but uh, at Christmas I will be there and. Rosemary and I are like, you know, whenever I, over the years, whenever I, I needed a, an ear, it was always Rosemary was the, the one that I would go to. We've created some, some amazing memories together and, and, and amazing work. I mean, they have been in so much of my work. I mean, you go all the way back to um, first play, you know, Newell was in my first play, Cheatin. Rosemary created Evelita and Daddy's Dying, Who's Got the Will. Newell stepped in as Daddy uh, many times. And then, uh, then of course, there was Daughters of the Lone Star State. Was it, Rosemary was in that, and then along came Sorted Lives, and that just changed everything for us. And you know, I don't know if you knew this, but um, when Sorted Lives premiered, uh, it, it truly was my coming out play, and I knew that I had to come out publicly, not just to family, friends, and people at work. I had to say, this is who I am. I am Ty. That is my mom. That, is, that, that was the inspiration for this play. And the LA Times did an article called, Let's Just Get This All Out in the Opening. And it was with me, my ex-wife Kelly, Newell and Rosemary, and Leslie Jordan. Sat down with Don Shirley of the LA Times and did a feature. And I will tell you, that was one of the scariest things when that article hit. But what was beautiful about that play, what ex-in-laws would say, oh yeah, I'll play a, I'll play a homophobe for you. I, I love that Newell was, was able to just be that good old boy that uh, had a change of heart. Because we talked about it earlier, you have to put a face, you have to put a face. And once you put a face on, you go, oh, he's gay, but it's still Dell. Rosemary and Noel Alexander were a part of Team Sorted Lives and the Desert AIDS Walk just recently in Palm Springs. Did an interview about why they're part of that team and why they do the Desert AIDS Walk. And for all of us, but especially your, your former in-laws for Rosemary and Newell, they said, you're their leader. They look up to you. And when you ask them to participate in something or be part of something, they trust you. I don't even have to ask. They just say, we want to be a part of this. I mean, they do it. Yes, they do it for me, and they, but they also do it for our community. They have become such amazing allies for us. Newell and Rosemary are just, as some of my characters, they're just precious, precious, precious people. They really are. They are very special, does not even describe Newell and Rosemary to me. As you grow older, you'll understand that you, know, you, you, you choose your family at some point. You know, that's what you just said, that the people, family and friends also, there's nothing... I think there is nothing that makes an artist 
more appreciative than your friends supporting your work. You know, when they show up, I called Newell and Rosemary and I said, hey, we got to get together. I'm back in town. I, I just spent three weeks teaching uh, college in Louisiana. And she said, oh, we're seeing you Sunday night. Part of my goal and part of my responsibility in, in having this opportunity to have storytellers be a part of IMRU, which has been on the air for 45 years, this is an opportunity to provide hope and inspiration and not always be so dreary. Hope you know, is one of my favorite words. It's tattooed it on my chest. Oh, wow. Hope. Yes, uh, because it was in Southern Baptistices, it was the last word of the play, with hope. Everybody has a story to tell, no matter if it's somebody I've known for years like you, or somebody that you pass on the street that you never see again. That person who just passed by you, they have a story. Yeah, they do. That, and, and you have to listen for those stories, too. That's what I do. I just taught playwriting, taught in Louisiana, and I told my students, I said, one of your assignments, first day I said, one of your assignments is just to go out and eavesdrop. Just eavesdrop and hear other people's stories. Giving ourselves permission to tell our stories. I think that you provide us a lot of opportunities with the work that you do. And you have something coming up. Our good friend, Stuart Bell, he was the mm -hmm. first one who, uh, who he created the Sorted Lives team for Desert Oh, wow. Age. Yeah, he was, the first, he was the first captain. He said, let's start the Del Shores Foundation where we can actually mentor storytellers from the South, LGBTQ storytellers. And so it is launched now, delshoresfoundation.org, and we are up and running, and we will be having screenplay competitions, play competitions, and short film competitions, and then not only competitions, but we will help the winners see their stories get made. It's another chapter that I, you know, we talked about giving back. It's, it's important to give back. And encourage young LGBTQI things to grow. I go back to my plays with Cheaton and all. And now, yes, of course, I always had people to help me and to guide me and to mentor me. And I, that's one of the reasons I want to be that person for people. We surround ourselves with people who make our lives richer. And I have been really, really blessed to have really good friends and amazing family. If you have a story to tell, tell it. Don't wait. Don't wait. Tell it. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, we still have a couple of minutes. Enough time for our last word. Tonight, that's singer Sam Harris reading from his 2014 memoir, Ham, Slices of a Life, Essays and Stories. This one about Liza Minnelli's wedding. How the world can change. It can change like that. Due to one little word, Mary. Naturally, like at any wedding, all the attention should be paid to the bride and groom. So I tried, I tried, I tried, 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 tried not to stare at Michael Jackson, but I just couldn't not. He was wearing a rigorously tailored black suit, festooned with velvet and sequined piping, and a darling Peter Pan collar centered with a diamond brooch. His hair was flat-ironed into a flirty Marlowe Thomas flip. His face couldn't have been whiter if he'd been an Irishman locked in a windowless basement his entire life. I'd met Michael on several previous occasions since the mid-80s, and he'd become less and less human each time, not only in appearance, but in manner, his very person. The man was on his own planet, Michael Planet. His eyes, darkly lined in black, remained closed throughout the service, and his head bobbed and wobbled from side to side to the rhythm of a music no one else could hear. 
Occasionally, he would titter to himself at an internal joke, showing his teeth just a shade less white than his face, and raise his shoulders like a five-year-old girl who just said the word penis for the first time. On the other side of the altar sat Elizabeth Taylor. She was wearing an ensemble that made me think she'd looked in her closet that morning and said, what shall I wear? Everything. But she was still Liz Taylor, and somehow it worked on her, down to the veiled, black, tooled, and feathered hat set slightly askew on her head. Or was she tilting to one side? I'd also met Elizabeth on many occasions since the 80s, and I truly adored and admired her as an actor, humanitarian, and one of the great purveyors of nasty, nasty, dirty jokes. But she was clearly exhausted from the trauma of the shoe ordeal. And when the priest requested we lower our heads in prayer, she did. And she never came back up. She never came back up. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution, Ann Sparkle, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night. Y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) 